beauty of Christianity, which is divinity and matter as the full incarnation of each one of us. This is what's distinct about our our tradition. This is the conversation and the offering that we have at table with all the other great traditions. The other great traditions flip a little bit off of the fullness of incarnation. And Christianity comes in and says, oh no, divinity is totally within matter. And matter lives totally within divinity. Again, it's this Aramaic oneness. Where is divinity? Divinity is in matter. There's no desire to separate divinity from matter or matter from divinity. So therefore, going to this concept of theosis. The first theological perspective of Christianity is that we are made fully from the nature of God, which is divinity and matter brought together. That's who we are. And that we're going to live our lives evermore living into this great nature that is who each of us is. My friends, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm Seth. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, brief announcement. See the show notes. Go to the website. As soon, hopefully in March, there will be a smaller community group inside of the Can I Say This at Church community, intentionally digging into some of the work that Alexander writes about. It has been very impactful for me over the last December of 2017 until today. I actually was reading a bit of it again today. And by today, I mean, you know, end of January here. I look forward to doing that with you. And if that's something that interests you, digging in deeper to the text of heart and mind, I will begin plugging that on social media. And there will be links for that. And we will walk through it together as the best way that we can. Before the episode starts, recent uptick again it seems like every few weeks there's another uptick in patron support and if you've not yet done that i appreciate every single one of you that does so i would encourage you to do that it is entirely affordable and makes a much bigger impact for making this show become something more so do that spend some time today take a minute and a half go to patreon.com slash can i say this at church and jump into the community i look forward to meeting and talking with you there if you ask anyone on the street, and I've done this, who is Jesus Christ? They will give a whole bunch of answers, but no one, for the most part, nobody says, you know, he's more than words can comprehend, or the Christ is more than Jesus can contain, or Jesus is the best representation of the Christ that we've had on planet earth. No one says that. No one breaks the Christ apart into a larger context, for the most part, where I'm at here in Virginia, where you live may be entirely different. But Christ is so much more than words on a page, and Christ is so much more than words can explain. Scripture's pretty clear on that, and I would argue so are my interactions with Jesus to this day, the weekly interactions, the daily interactions that I have. I shot Alexander an email right as he got back from his last Camino and said, hey, will you be willing to come back onto the show and let's talk about theosis and let's talk about a cosmic Christ and let's talk about truth and let's talk about radiance and light and darkness and let's see how they fit together for 2019. 
This is the very small beginning of an entirely much bigger conversation, and it's a conversation that requires intention, and it's a conversation that requires patience. And I'd like to leave that there. And so I'm going to roll the tape on this Martin Luther King Day recording with Alexander Shire. Alexander Shia, you are the first three-time, let's say, friend of the show, repeat guest that's come on, and I am so delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming back onto the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, Seth, it, it's an honor. It truly is an honor. I love every minute that, that we're together in conversation. So one of the things that I have valued most uh, of getting to know you a bit is a lot of the guests that I've had on prior. We may email back and forth or get on Twitter or something and talk back and forth, but um, I have developed a relationship with you that I would come closer to calling you friend than anyone else for the most part, except for maybe a handful of people that I've had on the show. And so from from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. It, it, it truly means a lot to have someone dive in and engage in uh, to the work that you do, uh, the community that you try to build, and then be intentional in sustaining that. And so before we get going, I did want to say thank you for that. You are welcome. I mean, you've got me almost speechless and a bit teary. Thank you. So I wanted to bring you on because the work that you do touches a lot on many things. And specifically, the way that you talk about the Gospel of John, it blows up Jesus in such a manner that doesn't sit well with the way that I think church works today in America. I, I find so yeah. often that we don't talk about Jesus as the Christ. It's just Jesus Christ, as if Christ is God's last name. And so I wanted to talk a bit about that, uh, the concepts of theosis, the interplay between light and dark, and kind of where all that goes. But before we get into that, what is new with you? I know that you're recently back from the Camino, and you're currently traveling. So for those listening, what's been new with you since the last time that they heard from you? Well, um, at this very moment, I am in Sacramento, California, in a dear friend's home. And it's the first sunny day in a week, and everybody around me seems to be out with their leaf blower. So I'm I'm wandering rooms to see if we can get a quiet <laughs> portal here. Um, I I uh, yesterday here in Sacramento, I presented to a pilgrim group on my new book, Returning from Camino, and was really touched that so many people came out who have not walked or even intend to walk the Camino but are understanding so many journeys in their own life as pilgrimage. And we just had this rich conversation. I woke up this morning with my mind sort of and heart sort of buzzing from this conversation yesterday about life as pilgrimage. Um, there were people there who are recovering from cancer as pilgrimage, uh, people who have gone through other sudden death experiences as pilgrimage, et cetera. And so that's new. And the, the other piece, which is new, is I now have seriously begun the next book, which I'm tentatively calling The 13 Days of Christmas. And the uh, title might change, although that title seems to be working for folks. It's just enough of an, it's like, well, what do you mean 13 <laughs> days of Christmas? Anyway, that's 
that's what's new. And with grace and breath, I hope to have that book out by uh, by the fall. Time. I hope you do as well. I remember the last time that we spoke; it was around Lent of 2018. Uh, well, the last time we spoke for the podcast, you were talking about doing that, but also working on the Camino book as well. Um, so I'm I'm glad to, I've heard some of that stuff uh, in other in other parts of your work, and so I think that that book specifically around Christmas. Uh, is needed, mostly because I find myself wholly inadequate when my kids ask me about, hey, why do we have a Christmas tree? Or X, Y, or Z. Uh, I, I didn't have good answers. Yeah, and, and, and it just, it, and it hurts my heart for people to think that those are not related to yeah. the Christ, that it's, quote unquote, some foreign element which has come into Christianity. Christianity and coming to Christmas, and nothing can be further away from the truth. And that really kind of kind of leads into this the topic of mm-hmm. Christ, because I think that our, our early ancestors were very focused on the Christ and Jesus as the Christ. But the Christ is what's foremost, and Jesus is the doorway into that reality. So when we say that, just to recenter that, um, well, actually, let me one thing of that on Christmas. So. Oddly enough, um, one of, hopefully by the time this airs, the work of the people has some of your videos coming out and or out, and one of them you talk about the winter solstice and the reason, you know, for it being, or the reason that we center Christmas around that time, and I was driving to church with my son, and we got to talking about why it was so dark. He's like, he commented, he's like, it's been dark all day. I was like, yeah, but that's, this is how it works, and he's like, okay, so why does that matter? And I was able to kind of take some of your stuff and reframe it. And you could just see him get quiet and process in the back seat. And I was like, here we go. We're, we're doing it right. I'm really hoping that maybe my kids have a bigger concept of Jesus uh, than, than I did. Uh, and that's is what it is. Well, you know, and, and ju- just to, to piggyback on that for a moment, I'm already being urged as soon as I the 13 days of Christmas is done is to immediately take that material and to write a to write a children's story with beautiful illustrations and so the next piece is to begin to find that incredible illustrator when we talk about Jesus as a bigger concept and, and Jesus filling into the shoes of Christ I feel like most people today say Jesus Christ like I say Seth Price or like you say Alexander Shia like when we blow that apart I feel like we're really good about talking about Jesus the man, and we're not good about thinking about Christ as a part of the Trinity or Christ as it's related to the cosmos. And so how do we rip that apart a little bit? Thank you for bringing us to this discussion, because it's core. And for me, let's go back to first century Israel, Palestine, and try to understand what's there as, as our tradition is birthed from our mother Judaism. So their word, because they were Hebrew, Aramaic, was not Christ. Their word was Messiah. And um, hear how I'm pronouncing that. I'm not pronouncing it as you might say it in English, mm-hmm. Messiah. Um, I'm using the Aramaic, Messiah. And the actual end of the word is the expulsion of breath from your mouth. And Aramaic as a language has very few words in it. So it's a very, if you want to use the term primitive, I think it's Aramaic 
has something like 2,000 words in it. And Aramaic was the language of the common folk in Israel, whereas Hebrew was the language of the priests and the scribes in the temple. So Jesus probably is speaking Aramaic as he travels around Israel, certainly as he travels around Galilee, etc. Aramaic, having so few words in it, has to use body posture to also convey what the meaning is. So when Messiah ends with that outbreath, well, what does Messiah mean in Aramaic? Uh, it's, it's more like a verb than a noun. Uh, Aramaic is a language which does not have defined tenses. It's a language that tends to be more about nowing rather than yesterday or tomorrow. And it's, and it's a language which is about an ongoing now. So there's, there's very little in Aramaic which is static. So it's, it's really important that when we say Messiah in Aramaic, that we're understanding about a present moment ongoing reality, not as we might think, a figure back in time somewhere or forward in time somewhere, but a reality that's right now and is dynamic right now. So the other thing about this word Messiah is it can mean anointing, but um, in the Aramaic and the Jewish metaphor of the day, anointing is to breathe on someone else. Uh, anointing is something very close to the miracle of breath and to the ongoing reality of breathing. So just what's in this name, Messiah, is like the ongoing breath of God that's living in you right now. It's like you're breathing because God's breathing in you. Mm. And, and, Paul is going to be the person, uh, St. Paul, uh, first century, who is the educated type, who obviously knows Aramaic and knows Hebrew and apparently knows Greek and Latin as well. It falls to Paul to convey this very um, dynamic reality of God's breathing in us and to try to put it into a Greek word. And Paul is the one who chooses the word, the Greek word, Christos. And here, how I pronounce that, again, there's, it's like a clearing of your throat at the beginning of the word, Christos. And as you say this word, again, there is the expulsion of breath. So Paul is translating Messiah from the Aramaic into the Greek word Christos. But when he does that, he also has to inform people that the Greek word, which sounds like a figure in time, is actually an ongoing reality. And so Paul has got to begin to break down the static reality of the Greek language, because the Greek language is very much about time, past, present, future. Aramaic is about the eternal now and the ongoingness of now. And so Paul has got to surround the term Christos 
with this ongoing in um, breathing reality in us that it's not uh, that it that he though he's using the Greek word he's trying to give the Greek word an Aramaic understanding and so he's got to, to he's he's got to teach the Hebrew even uh, and he's got to remind them you know who 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 was with Moses in the desert who was with you as you came out of Egypt the Messiah so this Messiah is an ongoing reality. This Messiah certainly didn't start when Jesus was born. Um, that's a visible manifestation of a reality that's always been. And so Paul is trying to help us understand that in the presence of Jesus, we have a way to fully appreciate and touch something that has always been true, that's been there from the beginning of time. I hear you say all that, and, and two things come to mind. When you talk about you know, breath and anointing. I can't help but think of uh, of the poetry and allegories in Genesis two specifically on what humanity is. Uh, you know, God breathing in, um, or or maybe I'm stretching it too far. I don't know Hebrew or Aramaic, and so if I'm wrong, please tell me. But you know, God breathing in or anointing humanity in that. But that that seems to elevate. I don't want to anthropomorphize Christianity in a way that's undue. And it also breaks my brain, as I'm sure that it would have been in Paul's time. How does a word like that in Aramaic deal with the concept of eternity if everything is currently now? Um, it, that's you know, e- e- eternity is a Greek concept. Um, if we if we go back to our Jewish mother, the Jewish our our, Judy, our Jewish nature in Christianity is only about now. Um, and and the nowness was so important that they didn't actually develop a concept of what happens after you take your last breath in terms of an afterlife. Mm-hmm. And we Christians today have gone back and put in a lot of afterlife focus into the scriptures, which is not there in the time in the original time of their writing. Mm-hmm. They are focused on heaven and earth here and now, the reign of God now, and that if we live the reign of God now, God will take care of whatever is going to happen after our last breath. Yeah. There, there is this huge transition, Seth, um, and I don't think that we fully appreciate this, that you know, where is, what continent is Israel and Palestine on? And they're on the continent of Asia. And there is more in common with um, Hebrew and Aramaic, with Japan and India, than with Greece. Even though they're right next door to Greece, the Aramaic and the Jewish mindset is Asian. Uh, Greek is about breaking everything in reality down into its smallest parts and examining it. Mm-hmm. The Asian worldview, everything is about how everything fits together in right relationship. And so in an Asian worldview, it's very hard to do what, in in many ways, science has beautifully done the last couple of hundred years in terms of breaking things down into its specific classification. Because the Asian worldview is, let's put everything together and look at it in its wholeness. There's a very different understanding of of Christianity when you stay in the Middle East. 
So I can hear that Asian influence in the Walking the Camino book, specifically with that concept of, um, mm, I'm going to say it wrong, Ken Sugi? No, that's not how you say it. Ken, that is how you say it. The thing where the pottery is broken yeah. apart and then melded back together with gold. I find that whole allegory uh, right. beautiful. Right. But when I... So when we're talking about truth and, a, and basically epistemology, like, you know, all the way back to, you know, I guess, Aristotle and, and whatnot, and Christianity or faith or religion as a whole being Hellenized, what does a wisdom of oneness and science, how do those two counterbalance each other? Because they have to for today's world. There's no way to detach one from the other. Say that again in terms what what do you mean by counterbalance? How 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 do they how do they fit into harmony or how or how are how are they attention of so either of those really but what I hear you saying is you know Paul is writing to people that have to break things down to their logical common denominator and India and Japan and, and other Asian cultures were were dealing with the the whole truth not a two plus two plus three plus five equals I can't do the math in my head because I made those numbers up. And so right. so exactly. if one of those, if the math is what I want to call science, and if the Asian or Indian or, you know, um, you know, Israel culture is dealing with what we're going to call oneness and wisdom, how do those two interplay? Because both of those now, both of those cultures greatly influence the world that you and I live in. We do. And, and we need to understand how each has a beauty and uh, in some ways, how each has a limitation. The, think of the incredible scientific advances that have come from being able to break things down into their smallest units and observe them and theorize about them. It's like uh, we probably went to the moon and came back because, and partly because of that ability. And yet, when it comes to spirituality, that sort of reality is largely not helpful because the because the spiritual nature is let's look at how everything is rather than a separate increment let's look at how everything fits together in an incredible recipe so we need both of these realities and we need to know which one is appropriate to the task at hand and so much paul paul i think would be greatly uh, saddened to see the state of religion today, which has taken Aristotelian Greek concept and thought of it as the paragon. When he sees it as the sin, he sees Greek Aristotelian thought as missing the mark, sin, missing the mark, because it's breaking things apart. And in the Aristotelian world, they thought of the world as a series of competing opposites. They thought if heaven is fighting earth and that our obligation was to align with heaven. They thought that men and women fight each other, and in their view, men should win, and so we should align with men, et cetera, et cetera. They thought that light and dark were opposites that were um, in competition with each other and that our job was to align with light. So it is the Greek mindset that Paul inveighs so strongly against that the language of the, the Greek concept of the world as competing opposites where everything is in tension and fighting the other is the language in the worldview of oppression. Mm -hmm. And the Christ reality is to bring us away from that repression 
back to understand everything belongs. I heard you say, you know, light, and that makes me think of two things. I recently read um, something by Merton, and he was talking about walking around and trying to. He was talking about theosis, which is a fancy word for becoming like, you know, like Christ, you know, becoming little gods. And he said, "How is it possible?" to tell them, and he's talking about all the people around him, that we are all walking around shining like the sun. And then he went on to talk about the sun as more than light and more than dark and all about glory and radiance. And I know a lot of the work that you've done recently talks about light and dark and radiance. And so I'm curious, how do you reconcile the way that we as a church or as a the big church, the capital C church, Talk about light and dark, radiance and glory, and and I guess the inverse of that would be sin and darkness. Well, yeah, I mean, and I we're recording this conversation today on the feast of Martin Luther King Jr. And what I want to uh, raise up for us to take very seriously now. In my mind, we've got to rewrite most of our prayer books, and we've got to rewrite almost all of our hymnody. Because if any of us want to stand against racism, we must scrub from our minds and our hearts every concept that darkness is sinful. And if you go back in the English language, particularly all the way back to five to six hundred years ago, you're going to understand that in English, Darkness has mean soiled, contamination, garbage, the sin of Cain, all of these associations, which are um, the missing the mark of the Anglo culture that were in the minds and the hearts of, of the Europeans who went to Africa and saw dark people and felt obligated to evangelize them because they because they were black because they were dark skinned they were therefore garbage and sinful and had to be retrained and just just i mean I, yesterday i was in church and i would came up you know we were singing this hymn and i had to stop singing it because the whole hymn kept talking about dark and sin 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 do we not understand that dark is of god do we not understand that dark is beautiful? Do we not understand that dark is not sinful in and of itself? Light can be sinful. Dark can be sinful. But dark and light can equally be of God. And every time we make this very simple equation of darkest sin or darkest pain, how many times do we describe a painful or a chaotic situation as a dark mm-hmm. experience? really dark about it. It's painful. It's chaotic. It's hurtful. We suffer. But there's nothing dark about suffering. Inherently, we've made, we have written racism into our prayers and our hymnody, and we need to stop it. How do you go about the practice of fixing that? I mean, there's so much, well, not tradition, but there's just so much inherent, I don't know what the word is, foundation? That's not the word either. It's it's built in, whatever that word is called. Like it's it's built in. Like the church that you go to and the and the conversations that you have, it's it's the inherent foundation of the topics. So how do you how do you go about that? 
So, I mean, I've been at this for 40 years, and I have no illusion that we're going to change because we have this incredible conversation. (laughs) What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to wake us up to stop the unreflectiveness about how we use the word or the color, colors of darkness. Mm. And to realize, I mean, I, I was reading a Martin Luther King talk the other day and realized that he talked about darkness as pain. Um, Just because he was a black man doesn't mean that he was totally aware of his own language. So we've got a long journey ahead. And I don't know when we're ever going to get there, if there's anywhere to get. But what I'm asking us to do is to wake up and begin. Hmm. That's all. Just wake up and begin. Just immediately begin when we see the word dark in our songs and in our prayers, look at how it's being used and disconnect it. Disconnect the equation sign we have inside of ourselves between the word dark and sin or the word dark and pain. One of the things I like to talk about is the most destructive reality on the planet is light. A nuclear explosion is the closest thing we have to pure light. So actually, the word light is probably closer to evil than the word dark. I don't like that. The more, I don't like hearing that out loud because I don't have an adequate response. Like The part of me that wants to logically say something finds no words. Yeah. It's painful. Well, it, 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 it is painful, but I, go back to the, to the Thomas Merton quote because what you may notice in my languaging and in the poetry that I write and the prayers that I compose is that I have removed light and dark from the conversation and basically have gone to the mm-hmm. word radiance because radiance has two things that the word light and dark do not have. It has movement. And radiance is the interplay of light and shadow. Hmm. I like that. And that's that's my offering at the table. I don't know if this is the best way to go. It's like I, we're too early in this conversation to have answers. What I'm inviting us into is let's have questions. Um, and let's really notice what happens inside of ourselves. And let's notice the beauty of nature, and let's understand that the beauty of nature is is the holiness of God. It's one of the metaphors for the holiness of God. And the night sky is utterly beautiful, but our languaging has made it sinful. I think I emailed this to you when when I read when I when I watched um, one of your most recent videos, and you talked about radiance. I actually got up and went outside and in the cold, it's like 20 degrees out here, tried to see what I could see, tried to look for new stars that have always been there. And I've just never had to use a a biblical language. I've just never had eyes to see them. They've obviously always been there. Um, One of them was an airplane that isn't always there, but most of them, most of them were always there. Uh, But it, it left me longing. It left me longing to go to open spaces because I'm curious what else I'm missing. And if I drill that down to my life as a person, I'm curious what else I'm missing because all I see is the light and dark that's currently around me and not the light and dark that actually is there. And if we go back to the Aramaic 
for just a moment. Um, the Aramaic language was a language of nature. It was a, the, the Greek language was a, a language of concepts. And concepts are beautiful and helpful, but concepts don't really live anywhere in nature. So Aramaic could only describe what a person could experience in nature. So therefore, Aramaic has no word for light and has no word for dark. You can't say that. Uh, what Aramaic, if you want to talk about daytime, uh, the Aramaic language will have words in it that describe the quality of the light, say at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the type of shadow that might be cast on the ground. Or if you want to talk about dark, the Aramaic language is going to have words that describe uh, the night sky uh, on a night that's moonless, uh, on a night that has clouds, on a night that has full starlight. So that uh, you see what Aramaic is doing is saying every dark and light are always in interplay with each other. You can't separate them in Aramaic. Mm. Therefore, because you can't separate them, you certainly can't say the dark is evil. think about light and dark in nature, as you were talking there, I thought to myself that the only way to then feel home is when I'm out and engaging with nature and creation, because the light and the dark on the trees and on me only looks the way that it looks when I'm where I belong, if that makes sense. Like if I go to Australia, the light is different, the stars are different, the moon is in a different position, the earth is at a different angle. Everything is entirely different. And I can still fit in, but I'm not necessarily home. Right. Yeah. Right. Curious with parallel archetypes of, of, of a cosmic Christ or a cosmic man. You know, like in, in, in Buddha, there's, or in Buddhism, there's the Buddha nature. In Hinduism, there's the cosmic man. And so I'm curious your thoughts on how multiple religions talk about this concept of, of, an, of, a, of a being that, must, that needs to be incarnated physically here. Well, and I think I'm going to slip a little bit to the left of that and and talk about the beauty of Christianity, which is divinity and matter as the full incarnation of each one of us. And this is what's distinct about our our tradition. This is the conversation and the offering that we have at table with all the other great traditions. The other great traditions Flip a little bit off of this, the fullness of incarnation, and Christianity comes in and says, oh no, divinity is totally within matter, and matter lives totally within divinity. Again, it's this, it's this Aramaic oneness. Where is divinity? It, divinity is in matter. Um, there's, there's no desire to separate divinity from matter or matter from divinity. So therefore, going to this concept of theosis. The first theological perspective of Christianity was is that we are made fully 
from the nature of God, which is divinity and matter brought together. That's who we are, and that we're going to live our lives evermore living into this great nature that is who each of us is. I mean, the Psalms have said that you are God's. Thomas Merton talks about the fact you are brighter than the sun shining, that to be a follower of Jesus the Christ is to aspire to do the work to fully live into our divine human nature. And Jesus shows us how to live into our divine human nature. And most other traditions will pull back from that they, with the fear that, that, that that's too much uh, for a human to, to assume. That most, of the other, most of our other traditions will set, quote-unquote, the Buddha nature or divinity as something over there, not something that truly lives inside of us, I think. Yeah. I want to always be listening to the other great traditions and have them teach me, but I think that's what um, that's what's being being shared. Yeah. And Christianity comes in and goes, "Oh no, theosis." Uh, we don't get atonement theory in Christianity for a good four hundred years. The first four hundred years of Christianity is seeped in this idea of theosis that we are fully born, conceived in the fullness of of the divine human nature, and that we will spend our whole lives gradually becoming ever more that in which we were already conceived. We don't come from a sinful nature. We don't come separate from God. Uh, We come with the ability, the innate ability, to draw ever closer into the union with God, which is who we're intended to be. I like that. I, d- I like the part that you say we don't come with an innate ability to not do it. But, and I, this does not require a response. But all I keep thinking when you say that is nobody told that to Augustine, and and Augustine is what you know filtered down to most of the church, or at least the Protestant church today. And I wish, I wish, I wish that had been communicated better to him. Well, it, it actually is it, the problem with Augustine is that we read Augustine by the lesser people who followed him and interpreted him. If you really read Augustine for Augustine and have the idea of theosis, uh, yes, he does talk about, about sin and how we need to overcome that, but it's not really his starting place, uh, I don't think. I, I think that Augustine is, was, was lessened by the people who came after him and interpreted him to us. I don't know enough about all that. All I know is what I've read of people that I trust. Um, so yeah, well, yeah. and 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 what's happened by the time of Augustine is the foundations of theosis are are being undermined mm-hmm. because we Christianity, in my mind, is always best when we're not part of our, of state governance. Um, the, when we stay is primarily a process of transformation. But by Augustine's time, we're tripping over into the trappings of state and governance, and we're taking on powers and privileges, which I don't think are, are, the, are the role of spirit, spiritual traditions. Knowing that the bulk, of, the bulk of a lot of the cosmic language, you know, in Ephesians and Colossians and John 1, well, John 1, but the, the first paragraph of Hebrews and 1 John I don't remember the verses, but definitely the first part of First John. I'm I'm curious. So, how? And I know that most of those were written, or if not all of them, were written before the Gospels were all the way written. 
so how is, you know, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and I'll leave John out because John talks very well about a, a cosmic a cosmic portion of Christ or a cosmic knowledge of Christ. How do we drill that? How do we drill this knowledge back into the Gospels? Because knowing that we're right now as we come in, by the time this airs, it would be Lent and coming up on Easter. And so we're going to have a lot of conversation about the incarnation, about resurrection, about glory, and about salvation. And so how do we hear a cosmic Christ in the other Gospels that aren't John? Yeah, for in, in my heart and mind, I always go to what I think of as the high point of the four gospel mm. journey, which is which is John and which is the prologue and which is John's passion, death and resurrection mm-hmm. account. And and then through that doorway, I understand how Matthew and Mark lead to that door and how Luke is the outflow from that door. But if I want to understand the deepest reality of who Jesus the Christ is, I go to John's prologue, and I understand that what John is doing is, John is the first spiritual text, and you probably heard me say this, and I'll keep saying it, it's it's part of my theme song. John is the first spiritual text that we have on the planet that we know of. There may be other texts that have been lost or that are not generally known to us. But right now, John is the first text that was written as a spiritual text for all people. Even Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, uh, the first audience for Matthew, Mark, and Luke were for the Hebrew people or for the Hebrew people who were adding to their understanding of the Messiah in Jesus the Christ. John's text is written primarily to all the tribes, all the people on the planet, and saying there is this reality from the beginning of time in which you are all formed by whatever name you call it. Mm. So John has to go back, and because we are going to be the tradition, the, the first tradition on the planet, again, that we know of, that resolves tribalism. We're the first tradition that no longer made people go to any particular temple site and say, this is where your god or your goddess lives. We're the first tradition that said, we are part of a tradition that understands that God is everywhere already. We're not going to go anywhere and bring Jesus. We're going to go everywhere and find Jesus already there, because this reality that we call Jesus is across all time and already across all places. So we're we're not we're it's like go discover the great truth that's already in every cell of the cosmos. That don't have any arrogant belief that you're gonna go bring him there. And that all comes from John's text because John doesn't want to create um a hierarchy amongst Christians. It doesn't matter whether your doorway into the Christ was Yahweh or Zeus. The reality is, go through whatever your doorway was back to the oneness that was there at the beginning of time. And that oneness comes from God and is of God. And God has put God's very self into the diversity of the cosmos. And we are going to be the tradition that welcomes the cosmos to sit at our table, not to be some bland uniformity, but to be a rather dynamic diadem intention that's who our that's that's 
who our God is. So John has got to, in his text, go back and, and finish the work that the book of Genesis began. In the book of Genesis, we hear about a God who breathed out into creation, and ultimately all of that led to the Jewish people being the first people to hear the promise. And John wants to say, and the Jewish people's promise is a promise that actually was given to every part of creation and was to given to every people and has been the radiance within them this whole time. And so go back and look at the prologue because you have the reality of this oneness that God has breathed out into everyone and everywhere for three stanzas before you get to the stanza that opens up and the word became flesh and the flesh lives amongst us. So when, when, when uh, John is talking about this oneness and this reality and this incarnational reality of God, which is everywhere, he's inviting you. If you are a follower of Dionysus, great. Go through Dionysus back to the one. If you're a follower of Zeus, if you're a follower of Isis, if you're a follower of Hector, wherever your starting point is, don't stand in the doorway and say, this is the final reality. Go through that doorway back to the one breath of God from which we have all come. And we understand that one breath in the reality and the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I can't think of a better way than to end on that, except except for to tell people as you deal with this, um, be prepared. And, and honestly, Alexander, as you were talking, I realized the fault in my question. My question is, was how do I break apart the Gospels individually when really I shouldn't be breaking them <laughs> apart? There's still that left part of my brain that I cannot seem to dissolve myself yeah. of, of breaking things yeah. apart. That's what makes me tick. But it's not always the right way to do it. <laughs> so, Seth, can, can I bear on you for just a, a one last thought before we end, knowing that this is going to come out somewhat as we are in the lead up to Lent or as Lent begins? Yes. The idea of Lent beginning by our being marked by ashes comes in the 6th and the 7th century. It's a very late development. It's not... It, it's not how the early Lent started. The early Lent did not start by being marked with ashes and understanding that we need to grow ourselves or have the grace to grow ourselves back to God. The early Lent was something called the rite of election because, and, and election was not, we're not going to the polls and checking <laughs> off people on ballots. Um, it comes from this beautiful word that at the first moment of creation, God elected the cosmos. And that in our conception, God elected each one of us. And so this ancient Lent began with this ritual called a rite of election. That may be a bad word that we need to change today. Don't get hung up on that. The impact of the ritual was we begin Lent celebrating that we are made in the image of God, that we are love, and that the love that we are made of is called to be more love. We are elected to love the cosmos. We are elected to love each other. And the work that we do this Lent, in the ancient Lent, the work that we do is not because I feel guilty 
about being separated from God, but rather I understand God's love for me, and because that love is so enormous, I want to be a better vessel of that love. The ancient call of Lent was the call of love to love. And everything about the Lent was not about your sinful nature. The reason that purple was put on for Lent, purple's not a, 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 a penitential color. Purple is the royal color. We put purple before our eyes in Lent, for those who do, to remind ourselves of the royalty of our nature as human divine beings created in the mm. image of God. Mm. Yes. So, another book. <laughs> Write it. Write it. After the Christmas book, because I, I need you to finish that one. So, uh, well, and, and, and the children's book with it. Honestly, that I find that I, I want to read the children's book more than the other one, because I feel like the other one, I, I, I find in children's books, I get more heart knowledge and less head knowledge. And oftentimes I need heart knowledge. I need people to explain things to me at an emotional level, not a logical one. So often. Uh, I, 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 under, I understand that. And, and for me, the process of writing the quote unquote adult book will help me refine what the children's yeah, book is going to be. Absolutely. But I, but I got yeah. you. I so, got you. I, I'm a great lover of children's books. Where can people, so there's no telling how much longer you'll be on this continent. And so while you're here, how can people connect with you and get involved in both, you know, the message of the Quadratus and, um, and, and all of the stuff that you're plugged into? How, do, how, do you, how would people connect with you, Alexander? Well, uh, thanks, Jeff. I mean, first I would say uh, go to the Quadratus website, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S dot com, and sign up for my um, sort of maybe twice a month blog that I'm sending out, a small video with some aspect of uh, understanding where we are in the seasons and, and the Gospels. Uh, secondly, um, these Films are coming out. I think even next week they're going to be start to be released by the work of the people. And you can access them by going on the work of the people website and signing up for a year's subscription to a whole host of films that they offer. Incredible work. Or you can go on the Quadratus website and um, rent those films. Uh, I, I think their films are going to go for $4.44, sort of a metaphoric number. Um, for a two or three day rental. And each one of the films is like 35 to 40 minutes. Mm. What I'm hearing back from people who have seen these films, um, there's some magic that's going on in them. And no credit goes to me. It's totally the beautiful people at the work of the people that have, have created these. Fantastic. Uh, lastly, uh, I really want to invite people to do something countercultural, which is, begin a long, slow journey of transformation by perhaps reading the book Heart and Mind with one or two other people and using the companion guides that we have available um, through the Quadratus website. And people, and I know this is, this is a real stretch, uh, people have been walking through this process a year and a half, two years and more. And without fail, every group, every circle has communicated back to me that their lives have changed. Their perspective on how to live as a Christian has changed. 
this is not an intellectual, philosophical, or Bible study class. This is a, you want to really transform your heart and mind. Here's a journey that has the grace of 2,000 years of our ancestors. Mm. Uh, let, let them and God work on you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I would, I would echo that. So I've been dealing with your work now for, when did I buy that book and send it to you? Christmas of 2017? I feel like that's right. Yeah. It's, I, 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 well, either way, that's a different podcast, but I yeah. highly would echo that. It's, it's your, the book itself, but more importantly, the work that's associated with the book is entirely worth it is not the right adjective or not the right um, disclaimer. I don't know what the word is, but uh, it's, it's definitely doable. I don't, I don't either. I just know if people will slow down and let the grace of Christ work on their heart. They grow, mm -hmm. they change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, they become people. They become people of, of deeper love and the ability to access love and to share love. Well, Alexander, I will give you back to the leaf blowers and to California and to temperatures <laughs> that are not. It's like twenty four now. Right now, it's the hottest part of the day, and it's twenty four. Oh, gee, I'm so appreciative of you coming on. Seth, it's always a delight, and uh, you are very close to my heart, and you're always in my prayers, and your listeners as well. Thank you. Take care. I met Goliath on a day that I did not perceive. I'm not a soldier, and I never expected to be. But he shouts in my kin. So it's been a few days since that conversation with Alexander. And the more that I think about it, the more that I realize that I'm still, and I probably always will be, in the middle of whatever journey religion is intended to take me on. There are parts of my brain that still break things apart too logically often, and there are other parts of my brain that still refuse to embrace emotion. And until I personally figure out how to make those two blend in and out of each other, braid of thought, you know, the logic and the emotion and my heart, there'll be parts that I always struggle with. And I think that that's just going to have to be okay. I hope that you will wrestle with the concepts of truth and light and radiance and Christ as a bigger piece of everything. And Christ is something entirely bigger than what you thought Christ was yesterday. Today's music was used with permission from Joshua Leventhal. His music is fantastic. You should definitely check out his new EP. And I am in love with his song, Goliath, uh, which was also included in this episode. The other tracks that were with this episode will be included, as always, on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist, which if you have not listened to, go to the website, find the Spotify playlist, or you can just go to Spotify and search Can I Say This at Church. One will be the podcast. The other will be like 200 songs. It is... It's very good. Hope that you'll engage in that, and I will talk with you next week. Thank you all for being here. I didn't want it back then, and I'm not sure I want it now. I've got no need to follow, to follow the footsteps of kings. Just want to tend pastures and kill giants with pebbles and slings. I 
on rooftops lead swift to the den of the dead. The lust of my flesh.